0: Welcome back to A Dream and a Fear. I'm here with Max, as always. We've just got off a great call with Glenn Stein, who's written a book on Robert McClure, polar explorer from the 1800s. Many of you will have heard of the story of Terra and the the Erebus and the sort of fateful expedition there, but you, you probably haven't heard of McClure, who... Was one of the ships that went to find him later on. Max, do you want to uh, just summarise a
1: bit? Of what yeah, we'll talk about? it was a really great chat, and McClure a sort of majorly overlooked figure in polar exploration made some significant discoveries that you'll hear about on our chat with Glenn and and in his book, which is called Discovering the Northwest Passage. He so I'd highly recommend listening on. And he also wrote his, or has a book in the in the works that's coming out next year about pirate uh, genealogy and history and he says it's some groundbreaking research so keep your keep your eyes peeled and also on another quick point if anybody wants to go and see McClure's grave, it's actually in Kensal Green Cemetery, <laughs> I went there myself the, the other weekend so it's definitely worth a visit if, if it tickles your fancy.
0: So yeah, we'll be hosting a Dream and a Fear, um, expedition to Kensal Green um, and, on on note... in touch <laughs> and on that note via Instagram and on that note I'll leave you in the warm embrace of Glenn. Um, Max, you want to start or we'll go straight into the
1: question. Sure, yeah, today. so we're, we're, we'll jump straight in. We're here with um, with uh, Glenn talking about Robert McClure and we'll just start things off. And could you tell us, Glenn, a little bit about McClure's early life and how he started out in the Navy?
2: Uh, yes. Uh, basically, uh, I want to start out by explaining that you know in order to do justice to McClure um, I needed to actually create a full and accurate biography of him because none existed and and for instance he was you know he was married twice and that that doesn't appear anywhere in um, in the bios of him so yeah he was uh, apparently never divorced from his first wife either so, so it's uh, really interesting. So in order to to deal with the man, I really wanted to understand as much as I could about him in order to go into uh, his service, and of course, his long involvement with Arctic exploration. Uh, of course, he was born in 1807, january twenty eighth, 1807. And this was in Wexford, Ireland. So five months after he was born, It was actually after his father's death, I should say, five months afterward. So, um, his father, Captain Robert McClure, was in the 89th Regiment, and he'd married a woman named Jane Elgy in 1806. And uh, McClure's mother had the misfortune of being a wife, a widow, and a mother all in one year, before she was even 19 years of age. So, his entry into into the world was very rocky, to say the least. Now, while his father was serving General Ralph Abercrombie in Egypt when the long struggle with revolutionary France, McClure was said to have been at Abercrombie's side when he fell mortally wounded at the field at the Battle of Alexandria in 1801. And it was during this time that McClure had saved the life of a Brother officer, a future general named Captain John Le and this basically formed a unusual friendship between the two men, because as the future general had uh, no children, and uh, he basically adopted McClure as his son, and. Then McClure went to live with the general and his wife because after getting out of the army, after serving for, for many years, the uh, Le Monsieur became a major general, and he assumed the hereditary governorship of the island of Alderney. Of course, that's the most northerly main of the main channel islands between Britain and France. Now, McClure resided is something of the prince of the residence you know he was he was the kid who had the run of the run of the household <laughs> until he was ten years old and uh the The general and his wife had remained childless for years, but then, in eighteen seventeen, boom, they had a son was born, and then another son in 1818 so all of a sudden McClure was not the the Prince anymore you see and, and he was definitely you know second fiddle to these children who were born to uh, his um, you know his adopted father and, and his wife so that gives you an idea of, of the uh, the environment that this this child McClure grew up in
0: Interesting stuff. And I guess moving, moving a bit further on to his sort of uh, early teenage and, and uh, t- sort of late 20s, he did, did he show the obvious character traits for sort of a polar explorer? I guess a lot of, pe- lot of young people at that time, it was there, you know, anyone who had a yearn for adventure sort of looked down that path. Were these character traits obvious?
2: Well... You have to understand that, again, because of McClure's upbringing and, and being without his natural father and in uh, and, and that situation, um, <clears throat> you know, he knew early on that he uh, wasn't going to be fit for going into the military because in 1820, he was uh, sent off to uh, Eton, and then the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst you know the father to follow in his father's and his godfather's footsteps and of course he would enjoy support in this army career but he he just did not want to have any of it he, he, he just didn't didn't suit him well and he's very rash so he left college and and went to France and said hey I'm, not, I'm never going back now eventually uh, McClure decided that you know I want to go in the navy so it was 1824 and the um, general secured an appointment for mcclure as a volunteer first class which would be a pathway to becoming a lieutenant in the navy but now he was on his own you see he wasn't going to have interest he wasn't going to have that political support so now he was uh going into unknown territory but it was much more than that mcclure was also very much aware he was behind the eight ball because he had to face this unmovable obstacle, his age. Most ordinary volunteers, first class, young gentlemen who entered the Navy would be 12, 13 years old. So he was 17. So, you know, he was not in a very good position at all and he realized this and he knew he was gonna have to work extra hard in order to become uh, an officer and make something of himself. Now, the things as far as his qualities to become an explorer, he was really, really focused on getting promotion and achieving prominence. So how do you do this, especially during peacetime? Because of course the wars of France are long over, there's nothing going on. So he knew that he had opportunities in peacetime, like polar exploration, in order to advance himself. And he was very daring. And he wasn't afraid to make decisions. So I think this really played into mm. his polar service.
1: Mm. Fantastic. And, and just to, as you mentioned, you sort of touched upon there with it being in peacetime in that period. Could you frame for our listeners a bit the, the context of polar exploration during the time? What sort of a field was it and what role had the British played in its development?
2: Well, of course, we're talking about the Northwest Passage and it's been... Uh, something that had spanned 350 years that the search for the passage had gone on and there was a huge motivation especially uh, as far as far eastern trade was concerned because of the mineral wealth and the fur trade and all this but it particularly involved Britain because Britain was at the end of long trading routes and had to pay you know higher prices for spices and jewelry and textiles things like this from from the Orient so the passage was also the shortest distance to these Far Eastern markets and uh, discovering it became a British national obsession essentially for these reasons now the British government they knew this was serious uh, business so they were willing to plunk down serious money and what they would do is they would offer cash for various stages of the passage being discovered or of course the passage itself finally being discovered. And this was a big motivator for everybody. Um, success actually was nearly at hand from very very early on in the 19th century because a uh, British naval officer named Lieutenant William Edward Perry led two ships like three-quarters the way through the passage. So he you know, he had f- tremendous good fortune and, able, and ability to do that. Okay. Um, but that was just one expedition because you have to appreciate the geography here. Um, there's just a maze of islands and you know you had to grope your way along ice infested shallow coastlines and pea, uh, pea soup thick fog and snowstorms. So finding a Northwest Passage was like attempting to find a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was. It wasn't like that. Pardon me. Finding a needle in a haystack. It was like trying to find a needle in a stack of needles, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but the public's imagination in the late nineteenth century and the early twentieth century uh, was just captivated. You know, the 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 grandeur and the picturesque beauty of the Arctic was really probably equal to the special effects we see in twenty first century movie theaters, for example. Mm. And um, you also had again you had nat- national heroes because there there was no war on, you know n- nothing to nothing to speak of. So uh, the idea of enduring hardships and you know sometimes suffering tragedies, you know these things uh, particularly appealed to the Protestant popular imagination in Britain. Um, and let's not forget it sold books, right? Mm-hmm. So people did traveling and they came back and they wrote books. And there were novels, and there were panoramas, and there was art. All these things really kept the Arctic very firmly in the in the public's mind.
0: And is it, is it fair to say that the focus was on this area rather than the Antarctic at this point, or was there equal interest in the Antarctic?
2: Well, it would have been, except for except for the fact that in September of 1843, you know, Captain James. Clark Ross returned home with HMS Erebus and Terror, having made three seasonal journeys to Antarctica. Mm. And these were some of the most successful polar voyages in history. However, in spite of attaining the highest southern latitude up until that time, uh, and in making astounding geographical discoveries like the Ross Sea, the Ross Ice Shelf, Mount Erebus, Mount Terror, for example, um, and huge areas of coastline, uh, not to mention the wealth of scientific data and natural history, it just did not capture the public imagination as the earlier Arctic adventures. And there were reasons for this, good reasons. The British Empire was in a state of expansion. And Antarctica offered no prospect whatsoever of mm. colonization or trade. And there were many, many more profitable areas where enterprising people from Britain you know, could develop. So it's just... It, it just did not, you know, really make sense to do any more in the Antarctic.
0: Mm. Yeah. And it, it, just from reading a book, it reminds me a little bit of sort of the race for space. It was all these countries uh, trying to map their way through um, this passage. Just moving slightly on, um, could you really tell us about his first uh, experience um, of exploration on the infamous, what is now the infamous HMS Terra? Yes. Uh, McClure...
2: Shared his uh, first Arctic cruise, <coughs> excuse me, first Arctic cruise with Mate Graham Gore, for example, and this was one of the future officers for the Franklin expedition. So, you know, I think this had a, a certainly an effect on him as far as uh, looking forward and going after Franklin's men, because he had that connection. He had that connection with somebody who he had experienced uh, Arctic exploration with. So that's a um, uh, that's a very personal connection there. So what happened is uh, McClure was given the opportunity to sail on the terror into the Fox Channel, which is north of Hudson Bay. And they were immediately surrounded by ice. And, you know, it was it was very, very short space of time. They had all this violent pressure where the ice toyed with them uh, before the year was out. Um, you know, an excursion on the ice caused a sailor to fall through, and McClure helped rescue the unfortunate soul and get him back to the ship. Because, you know, they knew that hypothermia could set in. And if your core body temperature drops, right below say 95 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, you just go unconscious and could very well die. So McClure, had uh, these traumatic experiences with Arctic exploration right from the get-go. Um, throughout the winter, the ice pack badly damaged the Terror, and she drifted southeasterly. When she got clear of the pack in 1837, in July of that year, uh, she was very much leaking. She was, break, you know, broken up, um, and at the western end of Hudson Strait. So there was no hope whatsoever of continuing the mission. And uh, George Back, who was in command, saw his men attacked by scurvy. So he didn't have any choice but to run for home. And it was only by superb seamanship that he was able to get back to Britain and actually beach the terror um, on an Irish coast in September of that year.
1: And his um, and, and, and you sort of touched upon it there. His his career was was defined in part due to his role in searching for HMS Terra and Erebus on a later expedition and many people will know this from the the Dan Simmons fictional, semi-fictional book and also the BBC series of the, uh, on the same topic. And to contextualise for our listeners, could you just briefly outline Franklin's expedition and the fate of it?
2: Oh, okay, sure thing. Um, and, And I want to mention too, again, the the personal connections and I made a lot of these in my book between the men who served uh, on these Arctic expeditions you know it was a very small world and and these men oftentimes ran into each other and they they knew each other and they serve you know when you're serving aboard ship it's very it's very close quarters and you get to know people rather quickly especially over a long period of time uh, mm-hmm. such as Arctic exploration but to talk about the Franklin Expedition. Basically, um, the, the Franklin Expedi- Expedition set out in um, 1845. And they were going to attempt to go through the passage, the Northwest Passage, um, all in uh, one season, maybe two seasons. So they were probably the best equipped expedition of any that had set out to do this and uh, what happened is of course is they they entered the Arctic with very high hopes and um, after they had done some initial exploration on the on the eastern end of the Northwest Passage they actually um, tried to go down and uh, go for the the passageway which would be just off the North American coast and basically cruise along the North American coast and achieve the passage. Well, what happened is, of course, is they uh, they got stuck in this tremendous ice stream that was coming from the Beaufort Sea, far to the Northwest, and um, never never able to get out of it. So the their ships were trapped in there. And um, when they went, years later, when people went looking for them, they they found, of course, a document, and uh, the document was uh, very clear about how the Erebus and Terror had been beset in Victoria Strait since September twelfth, uh, eighteen forty-six, and that um, you know Sir John Franklin had died in June of eighteen forty-seven, and the total loss of the expedition up to that time was nine officers and fifteen men. Mm -hmm. which was unheard of. I mean, that was just an incredible loss to the expedition. Mm -hmm. So what eventually happened is uh, they needed to make a bid for safety. And um, in 1848, in April, they were going to go ahead. uh, 104 survivors were going to trek some 250 miles down the coastline of King William Island, across the Simpson Strait and to the North American mainland, And then they still had about 100 more miles to go before reaching the nearest outpost of civilization. So it was just a death march. Everyone perished in the attempt. And the last survivors may have reached a place called Montreal Island, which is off the eastern side of the Adelaide Peninsula.
0: And there's just just from sort of Inuit accounts, there's even suggestions of cannibalism. Do you sort of buy this theory? Or do you think it's um it's sort of written into mythology
2: no no I think it happened yes uh, especially given the evidence the scientific evidence of some of the remains I think that they were driven to it because well we know that their food supplies in some cases were bad and we also know that uh, there wasn't a whole lot in the way of game to find food now, as far as getting food from the Inuit who they came across, well, the Inuit, you know, they're living on on very little as it is. I mean, it's very much subsistence living, mm. so they didn't have a whole lot to spare. Mm. Uh, they certainly tried to help the Franklin people as much as they could, but at the end of the day, uh, it wasn't. It just wasn't going to be enough.
1: Mm. Wow! Well, thank you for that, that fantastic summary of. Uh Franklin but also the uh, gory, gory elements as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, so then obviously after the the disappearance of Franklin the British sort of launched efforts to find them and, uh, and ha- what role did McClure play in this? you've already touched upon his personal connections?
2: Yes, uh, what happened of course is McClure um, ended up on the, one of the first expeditions to the first naval expedition to go looking for the Franklin expedition and, and he was highly recommended by uh, uh, well later on I should say he was highly recommended by James Clark Ross who held the Expedi- uh, led the expedition and the thing is is that uh, you've got to figure that people that had Arctic experience were extremely valuable especially especially officers So McClure, you know, even though the the expedition he went on under the terror in 1836 wasn't a success, he had the experience and and that's what you needed. So Ross, who uh, led HMS Enterprise and HMS Investigator on their first venture into the Arctic, he was of the opinion that the missing Franklin ships had sailed southwesterly from Cape Walker at the eastern end, in other words, of the passage. And uh, if he was correct, it meant that Franklin was stuck somewhere in the vicinity of a place called Banks Land. Well, Banks Land was, of course, later found out to be an island. And he didn't actually make, expect to make contact with Erebus and Terror, but he expected that as far as from his ships, he expected that he would be able to you know, sled toward them and, and make contact. Because they knew about this big ice stream that was coming through the Beaufort Sea, or from the Beaufort Sea. So, unfortunately, of course, Enterprise and Investigator met very unfavorable ice conditions. And uh, by the end of August in 1848, uh, you know, this is before they even arrived really in Lancaster Sound, uh, all attempts to proceed southward were no good. Um, and reaching uh, Wellington Channel or Melville Island through Barrow Strait was fruitless as well. So everything was jammed up with ice, and this, of course, would be very similar conditions to what Franklin had run into as well. So what they did was they had uh, winter quarters at a place called Port Leopold, which is on the northeast tip of Somerset Island. Um, I've I've been there, as a matter of fact, in my polar travels. Oh, wow and uh in order to communicate with whalers in Baffin Bay, Ross was actually supplied with two steam pinnaces. Now, you have to appreciate that uh Ross was not a favor of steam at all he was he was very anti steam so to speak, yeah. and he he repeatedly fed mcclure earfuls of warnings against ever taking on anybody with a background in steam propulsion Mm. so this cautionary tale became ingrained in mcclure's mind and and you have to appreciate that in that day and time in particular even though steam was certainly coming into its own you know ship captains uh had tremendous pride in being able to manage their sailing craft Mm. and manage the wind that, that was their destiny. So steam took wind out of their sails, so to speak. <laughs> but, but basically, when spring arrived in 1849, uh, they had sled parties that went out, and they were able to you know make some headway. Um, and in fact, Ross named not one, but two geographic features after McClure. One was a bay, another was a cape. So, so that tells you that, okay, he must have had some sort of uh, affinity for the guy if he named two features after one of his officers there, right? Um, so what happened there is um, all the searching they did in that eastern area uh, produced nothing. The, the party in crossing, if they'd been able to cross in Barrow Strait at the time, would have reached Beachy Island, which is at the entrance of a place called Wellington Channel. Um, they would have discovered at the time the first winter quarters of Erebus and Terror. Mm. So, so they just didn't, you know, they just didn't make it. The luck wasn't with them. The ice was against them. It just wasn't a good a good season.
0: I mean, r- roughly how far were they away in miles or in kilometers?
2: Oh, that, I, I do not know that off the top of my head, how far, off, oh, you mean from from, uh, finding, the, from the,
1: finding the camp of yeah. Erebus.
2: From finding the camp. Um, i I don't know right off the top of my head i mean they they weren't they weren't very far yeah uh they could have they could have reached it, but it was just it just was uh, you know it was just too far away mm-hmm. basically now Ross at this time uh, faced a very grave situation, and the situation was again very much like what Franklin faced. the health of his crews were greatly affected by scurvy yeah. and um they had to combat this, of course, with regular issue of lime juice. But afterwards, it was discovered that because of the faulty preparation of the lemon juice provided mm-hmm. with the expedition, it destroyed much of the anti value of the juice. Mm-hmm. So, so it, scurvy was just going, going to eat them up. But uh, what really affected them as well is the fact that uh, some of the salt provisions were bad, deficient quality, and the preserved meats were disgraceful. Mm-hmm. And we know this was a problem with Franklin's expedition as well because some of the cans were found to be underweight and it's a very poor quality mm-hmm. Well let's face it when you're in these in these expeditions, food means everything yeah it means everything because because this is what is going to keep you healthy And here again, I can tell you my polar travels because uh, I spent five polar seasons uh, in the Arctic and the Antarctic uh, when we had when we had good food aboard ship, which was almost all the time, it made it a lot easier to be out in that weather eight, 10 hours a day. It made it a lot easier. But what essentially happened is, um, you know, Ross decided, okay, uh, you know, I need to go back home. And this, was, of course, was very disappointing because they'd only been away one season. So um, when they paid off in um, November of 1849, you know they automatically had to to put together another expedition to go and attempt to find franklin because they knew that if uh, if time wasn't on your side with these search parties it definitely wasn't on franklin's side either
0: mm. and i guess yeah this is this is where he sort of takes takes on the second expedition which he he commanded but we begin to see um his sort of fractious character Can you tell us a little bit bit about how that affected his crewmates?
2: Yes. Um, the thing about McClure is he was one of these very colorful people. You know, he really stood out. He, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he was very daring. He was very decisive. And that can be a very good quality for an Arctic Explorer, but can also go against you too, if you don't know your limits. And, and he very much um, had it in for his first officer, for example, named Henry Haswell, the first lieutenant. And it's well documented that he would just uh, abuse this poor guy before the expedition ever left England and, and would rave saying he was incompetent and he didn't belong on that ship and all this kind of thing. And I could never understand that. I could never understand why the guy hasn't even, you know, gone on the expedition yet. So what's the problem? Well, Haswell came from steam. God. His previous two vessels had been steamships. And and Haswell had interest. He had political connections. Hmm. So these are things which which did not sit well at all with McClure. And and so now you're talking about really berating and and humiliating your first officer. This is the guy that keeps the ship running day to day. This is your right hand man. So on top of destroying this individual, you can imagine what it did to the people who were your other subordinate officers. I mean, they saw this and they saw how, how uh, bad Haswell had been treated.
1: And and, um, could you just give us a quick sort of well, it's a long, it's a long expedition. But could you give us a whip through, kind of, uh, or a whisk through the, some of the the key events of this uh, eighteen fifty uh, expedition to find Franklin? Are there any sort of critical moments that you would pick out?
2: Sure, sure. Well, here again, the whole expedition was was based on the assumption that Franklin's ships must be trapped somewhere west of Melville Island. You know, they really didn't have any idea that he was really far south as he was uh, in other words real close to the North American mainland so they were looking in the wrong place that's the first thing and and what they did was uh, they Admiralty put McClure together with a guy named Collinson okay Captain Collinson now Collinson had very little polar experience actually his only experience was uh, in the Antarctic in 1829 it's just a couple months in the off the Antarctic Peninsula. So that wasn't the big draw. The big draw was that McClure had, con- I'm sorry, Collinson had considerable skill and experience in marine surveying. So when you're dealing in these dangerous uncharted Arctic waters, that's going to come in handy. Mm. Now, as far as McClure is concerned, uh, this was actually his first seagoing command in 25 years of naval service. Mm. He, he he had never commanded a ship at sea. He had been, you know, the first first officer. He had... Uh, held other positions but he was never in command so this is a big test a big test to say the least and um, I'm thinking the Admiralty said well let's put these two guys together let's put the guy with the experience in marine surveying and the guy who has a couple of expeditions behind him and this will be a good pair they'll offset each other in other words okay so what happened is the idea was to go uh, around the horn um stop at hawaii and then go through the bering strait and approach from the west in other words the area that they thought that franklin had gotten to and which franklin ships would be well things went awry, uh things went awry um to the point where the ships got separated enterprise and Investigator got separated off the south american coast after they rounded the horn and and actually had uh had gone gone through, been towed through by a ship called the the Gorgon. So what happened is uh, they got separated and they never met again. They missed each other in Hawaii. They missed each other at the bear, entrance to the Bering Strait. And this was, uh, and the latter was in due to McClure's machinations. He wanted to make sure he could enter the Arctic himself mm-hmm and find the passage and gain the glory and he engineered it so he could do that Mm -hmm. so so uh basically he went through and and he had discovered not one but two passages on the western side of the northwest passage but then he got stuck in a place called mercy bay on the north side of banks island and um he wasn't going anywhere. The ship was, was stuck in that bay. And in a bay, the ice very rarely melts to the point where you can get a ship out. So did you want me to go ahead and, and cover Enterprise?
0: Yeah, I guess, yeah. But, but I guess they were stuck there for four winters. Um, yes. Is, is there is there anything particular that stands out from that period? And I guess how, how did, there was obviously fractions within the group, how did they cope during this period?
2: okay you on investigator you mean yes yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you okay can,
1: and then maybe you can uh j- jump to the other the ship
2: other ship okay yeah. okay um
1: cheers that's a bit convoluted
2: <laughs> sure sure um well it yeah. is it's it's uh it's a lot but mm-hmm. essentially um in addition to things that that stand out is mcclure of course trying to get rid of haswell uh in hawaii he tried to get him off the ship mm. and that it didn't work it didn't work and that was just as a very important moment because you know he had a chance to kind of put things back together and get the ship uh going again mm. under under himself and haswell and of course entering the arctic alone big mistake mm. big mistake because the whole idea of two ships mm. is so you if one ship gets in trouble you can fall back on the other ship that was the whole point mm. now mcclure's decision to winter in mercy bay on banks island that was uh that was also a very critical moment because he, um, as I said before, was going to have a real hard time ever leaving that winter station. So going back to, to uh, Enterprise, Enterprise entered the Arctic, uh, missing McClure, and, but thought, okay, McClure is ahead of me. I'm going to try to catch up with him. Collinson was overly cautious. He decided that it wasn't uh, going to work out, and he retreated southward, spent the winter in Hong Kong, when he re-entered the Arctic, he followed, essentially, the trail of McClure, but never caught up with him, and then he ended up sailing to the eastward along the area off the coast of North America, got to the point where he almost he almost got close enough to where you could sled over and find the area where Erebus and Terra had been abandoned. He would have actually discovered the, the disaster area, really? but... It wasn't to be so after spending, you know, uh, several winters in the Arctic, Collinson retreated back the way he came and ended up coming home in May of 1855.
0: Glenn, just at, at that point, if they had found them would would the man still be being alive, Franklin's man, or would, were they had they perished at that point?
2: That would have been 10, uh, about nine years after they left about nine years okay so they were long I, I I don't know I don't I don't think so and I think that uh any men left would have made it well as I said some of them may have made it to the North American mainland area where the the Adelaide Peninsula and Montreal yeah. Island I don't know that uh, they would have found any anything but uh remains mm. isn't it right they yeah did,
1: they do think they found some of the they did find some of the bodies somewhere else didn't they
2: uh yes yeah yes but yeah not they, there, they not found
1: that
2: no no that they found them of course uh, the what was left of them along the coastal area of uh king william island mm-hmm. and um you know it, it's hard to tell because you don't you're talking about you know a, a very severe environment and everything plus the fact too that yes some of these men had to have been cannibalized mm-hmm and and after you do that well let's face it there isn't a whole lot left is there mm,
1: yeah
0: and yeah i guess do you, do you want to just dive into sort of how what experience they had in those sort of four winters in the in the arctic
2: okay and and for the investigators men
0: exactly, exactly
2: yeah 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 um well uh basically um mcclure had he had discovered a passage um One of the passages where he, he, you know, was almost able with his ship to reach, came within like twenty miles of of succeeding in getting through Mm -hmm. in that first passage discovery, and um, and he had to retreat because of the of the ice. He wasn't going to be able to do it. And this is of course in the area of Banks Land, afterward known to be an island. So he decided that he was going to go ahead and sail his ship around Banks Island and come in from from the west but of course what did he have he had that uh, ice stream from the from the Beaufort Sea it was constantly pressing against him so that's when he eventually sought refuge in Mercy Bay and decided he was he was going to you know he was going to winter there now what he had done in the meantime of course is he did look for Franklin's men and I want to point this out in particular because he did make an honest effort in sledding expeditions to fan out and find any trace of Franklin he could Mm -hmm. which which he did not of course they didn't find anything uh, anything that would really tell him you know where to look further so he he did this he made a lot of geographical discoveries and what have you but let's face it um, the Arctic beat you up Mm -hmm. the Environment beats you up So after he discovered um, that this second passage was blocked by the ice and he was in you know he was stuck in Mercy Bay and everything um, He decided okay. I'm going to go over to the old base at Winter Harbor from many years ago where Perry had been and and he left a message there in 1852 because he knew there was another expedition, searching expedition that was launched from the the East, which would have been, uh, first it would have been Austin's expedition, 1850 to 51. And then uh, there was going to be Sir Edward Belcher's expedition that came after that, 1852 to 54. So after he did this, uh, he waited. He said, okay, you know, we're gonna try to get out of this bay. Well, it didn't happen. Mm. So he had to make a, he had to make plans and his plan was to uh go ahead and create two parties one party would march uh to the northeast and then the other party would march to the south in order to save themselves and then he would keep a select group of men skeleton crew of twenty men on board ship to attempt to break out well uh this was uh this is what he felt he had to do in order to be successful in his aim, and that is to complete the passage and sail the investigator home.
1: Wow. And, and did, did, is there any evidence that they interacted with the, the Inuit, uh, that they encan- or did they encounter an Inuit? there?
2: They did encounter the Inuit at certain times in their, in their expedition. Uh, they also encountered ancient sites, campsites, and, and other sites uh, where the Inuit had been, say, on Banks Island, for example. So it wasn't like they were the first human beings there, but they were probably like the first Europeans, yes, but not the first you know, human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, of course, queried the Inuit quite a bit about, hey, have you seen any other people like us? And uh, they, they did this through their interpreter, Johan Mierching, Who was uh, Moravian, a a German fellow who was a Moravian missionary, who who spoke enough of the Inuit language in that dialect to to communicate with these folks. So you know, the problem is that there just wasn't any information. There was nothing there that was going to help them.
0: Mm. That's interesting that you say that, and particularly if they were struggling with scurvy, did they never look at sort of the Inuit diet and see and sort of understand how they were protecting themselves from
2: that I don't think they had the opportunity to do that it, yeah. you know, the Inuit are of course you know they are nomadic yeah. and there wasn't there wasn't that sort of long-term interaction mm. you know to to do that uh, what have you now that said the surgeon on board Alexander Armstrong was very very good at what he did I mean he he really made valiant efforts to stave off disease and scurvy in particular and in fact he he wrote about it uh quite a bit of course in his journal and uh ended up um being awarded a prize after they came back mm. for his uh his arctic journal because uh he had he had done so well in keeping keeping the the crew relatively healthy as much as he could except for that last year say year or so. And, um, yeah, but, but they didn't really have an opportunity to understand yeah. how the Inuit you know, lived.
0: Interesting. Um, and you, you mentioned, uh, Sir Belcher just earlier, w- what role did he play in rescuing them?
2: Well, Belcher's expedition was in two divisions, the Eastern division, which you, you know, you had the, um, HMS assistance, you had the Pioneer, and then you had the North Star. The North Star was the storeship. And then you had the Western Division, which was HMS Resolute and Intrepid. And Intrepid and, and Pioneer were both steamships. They were steam tenders. So what happened is the uh, Resolute and the Intrepid were actually sailing over to Winter Harbor in that area. Um, um, in order to to search in that area and of course they were told to look out for investigator Two, and they found the note that McClure had left in uh, 1852 so by the uh, spring of 1853 okay they were actually sending uh, a sledding party over to try to find where McClure was so literally with uh, in a day before McClure was gonna send these two sledding expeditions or these two sledding parties off from the ship, uh, you know, somebody from from Kellett's van, so Kellett's, you know, Western Division arrived and they knew these guys were going to be saved at that point.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Am I right in saying, I I read somewhere that um, the desk in the Oval Office is made from the wood from Resolute, is that true?
2: yes yes because of course what happened is after they were saved the the investigator people went over and they were aboard uh, resolute and they were aboard the intrepid and tried to reach the eastern part of belcher's expedition but Mm -hmm. they ended up everybody ended up getting caught one more year 53 to 54 in the ice in the winter so when the ships were all uh, finally abandoned and there were five ships total besides the investigator, abandoned the Resolute afterward ended up floating out of the Arctic into the North Atlantic and it was discovered by a, a Yankee whaler no less and it was brought into port and um, you know when, when the Americans refurbished the ship through taxpayer money essentially and they gave it back to the British as a as a gift and uh the ship was was no, never used again you know for exploration anything like that but when it was broken up it was decided to to make uh th- this desk actually i think there were a total of three desks i believe that were made uh one of them was a gift to the american president and mm. another was a gift to the queen and i think there was a third desk uh smaller in proportions that you know was constructed
1: wow yeah. yeah nice facts and um So we didn't actually, uh, how do you say, explicitly express it, but essentially McClure was, for our listeners who aren't aware, McClure is the first person, or it's argued he's the first person to cross the Northwest Passage, albeit by sled. Um, Could you spell out um, how significant their achievement was uh, for the period, given the context of the period?
2: Well, again, I want to point out that both McClure and Collinson, uh, you know, they took large ships, deep into Arctic waters, which was was quite an achievement because these ships just are not made for those sort of waters at all. And they made serious efforts to accomplish their primary mission to find Franklin and his men. So I I think that gets overlooked sometimes. You know, it really does because, you know, they did not have a lot to go on and and they did everything they could to to try to save their countrymen. So as far as the achievements and everything, you know, there's several routes or passages that connect the Northern Atlantic and Northern Pacific Oceans. So there was never just one Northwest Passage. And McClure found two of them. Mm -hmm. So, So that was rather impressive. And when you look back and you say over a 30 year period, and this is often with considerable reliance on native peoples, European explorers helped shape the discovery of the passages. But it was really Franklin's officers and it was John Ray who discovered the passages in the eastern Arctic.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, of all these passages that were discovered, just one was really navigable, mm-hmm. and that was Ray Strait. And that was uh, an area between King William Island and Boothia Peninsula. It was discovered during um, John Ray's 1853 54 survey expedition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they, were, they were significant, but they were not significant for, again, their navigability. They mm-hmm. weren't really navigable as they had wanted them to be in the uh, many decades before in the search. It was more an idea of prestige for the British because the Russians, of course, had what? Russian America, what we call Alaska today, mm-hmm. and they were pushing to the east, so they they didn't like that yeah. because they were intruding on on British North America, Canada as we know it today, and then also, too, there was, um, there was a lot of science, science that came out of this. There were some great scientific achievements in the, in the various disciplines of science. So these two, I think, are, are rather overlooked when comparison to the idea of the Northwest Passage.
0: And I guess, sort of moving on from that, do you think that's why his legacy is slightly relatively unknown, even in, in the polar world?
2: yeah um it's it's really it's really unfortunate because McClure although he was daring as i mentioned he was very decisive he he didn't have some of the um you know nicest qualities you know he was a very colorful mm-hmm. character he stood out um but not always for the best of reasons because the achievements that he gained were the expense of his men mm and historians probably fought shy of him over the years just for this reason so he's become you know less well known mm. when i wrote discovering the northwest passage i really hope to change that situation and really give a balance to the whole story mm. so so the reader can really see the big picture of everything that was going on in that regard
1: yeah thank you yeah i mean we've well, done a, a big, a big uh you've made a big step towards that uh, definitely as uh we we've we've learned a lot through your book so yeah it's a good contribution to a great contribution to to polar exploration Uh, and um and 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 to to go back to McClure, despite the overall success of the the expedition that you've touched upon there was sort of points of controversy on his return to england he was court-martialed but then pardoned um, but also a number of decisions uh, that he made on the expedition were criticized and it has even been suggested that the two pla the two party escape plan of eighteen fifty three was reckless and, and that it was just even a ploy to eliminate um the weaker members of the crew and 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 get get more rations uh, wh- How do you assess such criticisms of 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 McClure's decisions?
2: Well, one of the things I want to do. Uh, just to preface that a bit, is that because McClure made the decisions he did, and because he nearly suffered the same fate as Franklin, the investigators' voyage really represents a unique window into what must have what it must have been like on board Erebus and Terror. Mm-hmm. So if you if you study the investigator expedition, I think you can say you're studying a good bit of what went on with Franklin's expedition. Mm-hmm. and and things that we will probably never know because we'll never be able to have as complete of a story. But getting back to your central question, of course, a court-martial after you lose a World Navy ship is standard practice. And during the inquiries, the investigators, the people who were both the captain and the crew, were exonerated for the loss. Now, there was some, of course, political maneuvering, which McClure was very good at and he, he was cleared of any wrongdoing. But when you look at the escape, escape plan that he had for the two sledding parties, you're talking about half-starved men in poor health. And in the best of circumstances, sledding is just, it's incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. It just, it's incredible. You know, you, you inhale that cold air and it goes into your lungs. And when you exhale, of course, that moisture leaves your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes you constantly thirsty just just really does and I've experienced this I've experienced this in, in you know in the Arctic and in the Antarctic I know what it's like so these these two sledding parties were really being sent to their deaths and the only saving grace is something that McClure could not have known of course and that's the parties uh, that were aboard the resolute and intrepid off Dealy Island Okay, because one of the one of the groups that McClure was sending away was led by going to be led by Lieutenant Haswell and it would have taken that party very near to where Resolute and Intrepid were so they probably would have been saved by those guys. Mm-hmm. But that just that's just a, a fluke, yeah. you know, you, you, you no one really knew that so mm-hmm. and then um, of course staying on board. That's just mm-hmm. that was just madness i mean uh he had 20 men who he hoped with that slim number he could actually get the investigator back but uh i just i think the whole thing was going to be uh just one big disaster
1: Mm. so no no real way that you can pin the blame it was just it was a mess regardless
2: well, because of the decisions that McClure made, yes, yes, it <laughs> was going, he was going to be, he, he really boxed himself, he boxed everybody into a corner, you know, they weren't going to get out.
1: So you think, they some, of, so you think some of the criticism of decisions earlier is fair then?
2: Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. Yes. Because you see, when you go back to why the Admiralty chooses these guys well number one there's not a whole lot of people around with polar experience but number two you know you you have to be able to make decisions far away from authority you have to be able to make decisions on the spot and things like that well that's that's good what's not good is when you're making decisions that are in your best interest in the future but in nobody else's Mm. and this whole idea of glory seeking gets people killed Yes the same hap- same that happens in in you know wartime and combat yeah
0: yeah yeah. and well i i guess you, you've obviously got your own polar experience but what was it that sort of drew you to to the story of mcclure
2: well for years i had uh i collected medals and in fact it's been almost 50 years now that i started when i was a boy uh I collected medals and i actually had medals to to private george parfit and a uh, Royal marine and also the surgeon Robert uh, Anderson who was was on Enterprise yeah, wow. and um, the medals to master Frederick Crabbe who was on intrepid and he was the last guy one of the last guys to actually see the investigator before it was abandoned entirely yeah. and and or, or not seen again until it was discovered in 2010 wow. so so you know I had that personal connection myself through studying these men. Mm. Um and I also wrote a two-part article involving the mysteries of the Arctic Meritorious Service Medals and the Arctic Gallantry Medal which was published in a British journal in 2008 because nobody really understood why these medals were given. Mm. And uh I can I can briefly explain that if you wish. Yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah. So what happened is I couldn't understand why four select men were given these Arctic Meritorious Service Medals. That's just a, that's a term that, it's a convenient term to describe them, it's not an official term. Um, and what I discovered was that four that, uh, for the men who actually volunteered to stay on with McClure after he was ordered by Captain Kellett to abandon the investigator, those four men each got a medal. And that's principally the reason right there is, is they said, Hey, we'll stay with you. We'll stay on on board. So they end up getting medals out of it, which is rather interesting since they had to survive to receive the darn (laughs) things. And and then the Arctic Gallantry medal is a unique medal given to, it was given to Sergeant John Woon of the Royal Marines. Uh, This was a, a little more complex. At least in, in my reckoning in my research because number one he saved a shipmate uh who, who was out they were out on a hunting ex- expedition and he saved him and, and the man was in absolutely terrible condition he was going to die and wound ended up uh literally uh nearly dragging him all the way back to the ship save his life and wound also gave Uh, of sterling performance during a hunting venture one time when they were very much in need of fresh meat where he shot two muskox and the the last one that he ended up killing he used the ramrod that's all he had left didn't have any ammunition he used the ramrod uh to shoot the muskox uh, right through the heart and the the creature literally collapsed within six feet of him. so he was just this you know, quintessential hero
1: wow.
2: of the expedition.
1: Wow, amazing that you have that connection through the, the medals. And um, and and what what do you think then is you've mentioned McClure as quite a challenging uh, guy, and um, but what do you think is the most valuable lesson that his life teaches us?
2: Know your limits. <laughs> <laughs> you you better know your limits. It's that's very important in life yes, I
1: think that's a good,
2: a good <laughs> we all we all go beyond that at times but that's another story
0: yeah, yeah no very well put and i guess if you were to sit down with him to have a pint um what would be the one thing you would ask him
2: did you ever did you ever think that you might not make it out of mercy bay
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: you know i i would love to ask him did did that thought ever enter your mind? Hey, mm-hmm. I may not get out of this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But, but, you, but you have to remember something, okay? In, in, in the British mind in particular, their thing was to, to have dead heroes. Because mm-hmm. if you have a dead hero, you can, you can form that heroic persona in any way you wish. So I don't think I don't think dying would necessarily have been a bad thing for him because he probably figures, well, I'm going to be a hero mm. one way or the other. Mm, yeah.
0: That's interesting. That's sort of a common theme with, yeah, many of the characters that we we um, we talk about. So yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think that wraps wraps up a really great hour. Um, Glenn, thank you so much for giving up your Friday Friday afternoon. Um, both myself and Max thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you. Yeah.
2: You're quite welcome. It was my pleasure and thank you again for having me.